0: Let's turn together to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. We are going to look at verse 11, and we'll read from verse 11 to verse 26. Verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest, And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, the governor was known to release unto the people a prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notable prisoner named Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, which of the two will you that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we now turn our attention to the reading of your word and to the hearing of your word, Lord, we pray that you would help us because we need your help. These things, Lord, are deep and they challenge us to think outside of our box. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to help us understand what it is that you want us to understand in this passage. We pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to look and the ears to hear. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified, that from seeing your Son, that we would see you, and we would see the beauty of who you are revealed in him. Lord, use this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now in our series through Matthew to the infamous, scandalous trial of Jesus before the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Most of us are familiar with this story. Most people are familiar with the story of Jesus before Pilate. Uh, The acknowledgement or the knowledge that Jesus was tried by Pilate and condemned is common knowledge. It's in most Christian creeds. It's in the most famous Christian creed. The Nicene Creed that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so, most people know this story, but few people have processed the story. Few people have thought deeply about what this is all about and what it reveals and what it means and there's lots of different thoughts that people have about Jesus before Pontius Pilate everybody knows it was an unjust trial that at this time in this incident an innocent man was condemned to die that's basically the general point of this right Jesus was innocent it was a sham trial an innocent man was condemned to die but who was really responsible for This innocent man, Jesus, being condemned to die. Was Pilate innocent when he washed his hands? What is the significance of Barabbas? And why? We know that God appointed all of these events that we read about in the Passion. Why has God appointed it? Why did things happen this way? And these are the questions that we're going to focus on this morning. Now, To refresh our memories and to catch us up in the narrative, look at verse 1 and 2 with me this morning. In verse 1 and 2, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. We read that last week. And to refresh our memory, Jesus has been betrayed and he's now in the hands of men. He's in the hands of of the Jewish leadership. He's delivered into the hands of men. He's tried by them in the night. He's condemned by them to death. But the reason why they take Jesus to Pilate is because the Jews at that time didn't have the authority to execute capital punishment. They wanted Jesus dead, but the Romans didn't allow them to put anyone to death. If they were to put Jesus to death, that would get them in a whole lot of trouble with the Romans, and they didn't want to get into trouble with the Romans. So they're concerned about not getting into trouble with the Romans, they're not thinking about not getting into trouble with God, right, and all that they do. But they take Jesus to Pilate so that Pilate can have Jesus put to death. They're not taking Jesus to Pilate for Jesus to have a fair trial, they're taking Jesus to Pilate so that they can push this through, so that Jesus can be removed, which is what they desire. And they bind him, it says in verse 2, and lead him away. Matthew Henry writes about Jesus being bound, that Jesus was already bound with the bonds of love to man and of his own undertaking. Remember, no one takes Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid it down. Those bonds are not the real reason why Jesus went to death. He was already bound with the bonds of love to man, of his own undertaking, else he had soon broken those bonds as Samson did his. Right? Couldn't Jesus have broken his bonds like Samson? We were fettered with the bonds of iniquity, held in the cords of our sin, but God had bound the yoke of our transgressions upon his neck, the neck of the Lord Jesus, that we might be loosed by his bonds. The words of Matthew Henry. We must remember that nothing is an accident here. That this isn't a tragedy. This is God using the sin of man to fulfill his own will to set us free. Jesus could have freed himself at any time, but he endured all that he endured for our sake. So as we read the Passion narrative, we've got to keep that in mind, that everything appalling that takes place, and it is appalling, was endured for us by the will of God. Otherwise, we could not have been saved. Now, verse 11, where we started this morning, picks up the narrative. There's a little detour where it talks about Judas and what happened with Judas, which is what we looked at last week. Verse 11 resumes the narrative, and you'll notice that when the narrative is resumed, we're kind of jumping right into the middle of the incident. There's some details that are left out. The first thing we read here is Pilate saying, asking Jesus, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Turn with me to Luke 23 and we're going to see why Pilate has asked them that because we're jumping into the middle. Obviously, the accusation has already been brought before Pilate for him to even have to ask Jesus this question. Luke chapter 23, verse 2. Maybe we'll start in verse 1. Luke 23, verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asks him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So this is the the detail Matthew omits, but it's implied, obviously, in Matthew. They come to Pilate and say, to get Jesus executed this man is an insurrectionist this man is stirring up the nation to turn against the Romans to forbid giving uh, taxes to Caesar and he's saying that he's the Christ the king the king that's come to rule and to reign you see if all they had said to Pilate is Jesus is the Christ Pilate really wouldn't have understood the implications and wouldn't have had him executed he's the Messiah of the Christ that's ah, just a religious matter you guys see too it doesn't concern me but they point out to to Pilate the true implications of being the Messiah. And this isn't a false charge. For Jesus to be the Christ truly means that Jesus is the King. And if Jesus is the King, that is going to get Pilate's attention. Otherwise, he wouldn't care. The true implications of being the Christ is not only that you are a king, but you are the king of Christ kings right Christ is not a king one of many Uh, first among equals the Messiah is the king of kings and the Lord of lords to be the Messiah means you are the king of the entire earth you are Caesar's king this is what the true implications are and Jesus himself doesn't deny it at all Go back to Matthew and look at chapter 26, verse 64. Jesus himself pointed to two messianic prophecies that have exactly to do with this. You remember in Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus said, You have said, that when he said, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? You have said truly, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Okay? Jesus himself, when he says to them, yes, I'm the Messiah, and you're going to see that these things that the prophets have said about the Messiah are true of me. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. I'll do a little bit of flipping here this morning. Daniel chapter 7, and look. let's see the verse that Christ points to and applies to himself. Now consider this in light of Pontius Pilate and Caesar. Daniel chapter 7 right after Ezekiel Daniel 7 verse 14 starting from verse 13 I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the agent of days and they brought him near before him and there was given unto him dominion Glory and a kingdom so that, how many? All people, nations, does that include the Romans, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Jesus took that verse and said, yes, that's me all people, all nations, all languages shall serve him. Turn to Psalm, Psalm 110. So that's one of the passages Jesus alluded to. And here is now the second one. Psalm 110. That's kind of a treasonous statement if you're a Roman, isn't it? Especially when you say, yeah, that's me. Me. I'm here. I'm the king. I have dominion over all. And Psalm 110 One of the most famous Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus applied it to himself that night at his trial. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of that king-priest Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand, remember Jesus said, the Son of Man, you shall see him sitting at the right hand of God. The Lord at thy right hand shall what? He shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen and shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Treasonous. Wow. And the Jews, the crazy thing about this is that the Jewish leaders believe these scriptures. These are their prophecies that they believe. They want these things to happen. They don't like the Romans. They don't like Caesar. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah to come along and strike the heads of the nations, rule over the kings, rule over all peoples, nations, and languages. What's the problem? The problem is that Jesus, they don't like him, right? All the prophecies about the king striking through kings and being the king of kings, they don't have a problem with. The problem is with jesus they don't want him because jesus comes along and jesus doesn't say you guys have been faithful jesus comes along and says you guys have been unfaithful shepherds and you're going to be removed and you're not going to enter the kingdom of god they don't like jesus because jesus came and preached truth they didn't like this messiah not you And it's amazing that this is not some sham charge that they bring to Pilate. This is Israel rejecting their king. They're lying to Pilate's face and saying, "Uh, this guy says he's the Messiah, the king. That means he's going to come and and destroy the Romans. And this is treason against Caesar. Something that they themselves want. They don't want him. They're betraying Jesus with their own prophecies because they hate him. This is the whole theme we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of Matthew isn't it the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus Jesus comes and confronts the Pharisees and they hate him for it and they want him removed a complex situation isn't it Pilate is concerned of course by this charge and so he asks him oh are you the king of the Jews because this is kind of a treasonous charge and what does Jesus say he yep <laughs> I don't deny it. He didn't say, I'm just the Messiah. He said, I'm the king. You have said. It's a qualified affirmative. There's no question, unequivocally, Jesus says yes. A shocking answer to Pilate because he doesn't look kingly. In fact, in in Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? In the Greek, it's it's drawn out a little bit more. Are you the king of the Jews? You? You? Jesus says, yes. Now, Matthew doesn't give us some more details, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus says a few more things to Pilate in his yes answer. In John chapter 18, Jesus says, when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said, yes. And he goes on to say this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Because you know, if it was of this world... Yeah, we'd be doing petty insurrection if it was of this world. Yeah, I'd be telling people not to pay taxes. I'd be gathering up the fighters. I'd, been, I'd be sneaking around. We'd be executing people by night. Yes, if my kingdom was of this world, you would, be need, you would need to be concerned with petty insurrection. My kingdom isn't of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have a legion of angels at his command that could come and deliver him at any time and smite the nations. Peter pulls out his sword to save Jesus. And Jesus says, put up your sword in, your sheath, in its sheath. Don't you think I could call a legion of angels down and they could wipe everybody out and I could be saved? My kingdom is not of this world. If I were to take over, I wouldn't need petty insurrection. And that's not why I came, he says, to Pilate it's not why I came he says for this reason I was born now he's talking about his coming in the flesh his incarnate his incarnation his coming into the world at this time for this reason I was born why? to take over everybody? no he says to testify of the truth this is why I'm here Pilate Yeah, I'm the king of the Jews, it's true. But my kingdom's not of this world. You don't need to be worrying about me telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. I'm here now to preach truth. We are not to think by this saying of Jesus that he isn't coming in glory. Jesus has taught us that he's coming in glory with all the holy angels. But he's telling Pilate why he is here now. And it's not to stir up the political waters. He's come to testify of the truth. He's come to testify of righteousness. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to testify of the righteousness that is God's and to show people what righteousness really is. If you haven't learned that lesson, you have not learned anything from Jesus. He came to show us that righteousness is perfection. He came to show us that unless you're perfect like God, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He came to show us that all those religious teachers that are teaching you about God, about being a good person to be saved, how to get into the kingdom of heaven, they're wrong. If God were to come right now and judge the world, you'd all be lost. Because righteousness doesn't come through your obedience to the law, because the law requires perfection. Jesus came to testify of the truth of righteousness and to die for us as the only way that you and I can be saved from the wrath of God, the coming wrath of God. This is the only way. You are guilty. God loves you. Believe in me. Trust in me. I came to give my life a ransom for many so that you could be saved. This is the truth. If you don't believe this, Jesus says you're not of God if you don't believe this. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter if you go to church faithfully. It doesn't matter if you give them your money to church faithfully. It doesn't matter if you've served a mission. doesn't matter all the good things you've ever done. If you don't believe what Jesus has taught about righteousness, about yourself as a sinner, about God as a God of grace, you are not of God. Jesus is saying that many religious people are not of God. So no, he didn't come to stir the political waters. He, stir, he came to stir up the waters of the knowledge of God. Or maybe better yet, to empty out all the muddiness and to bring in the clear water of the truth of who God is. Francis Bacon, in, in an essay on truth, captures Pilate's response to this. Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Pilate walks away. He's not interested in this kind of conversation. Pilate concludes that Jesus is innocent. He says, "Ah, this guy, yeah, he says he's a king, but everything's spiritual to him. It's not about, look at him, and look at what he says. He says, this man, I find no fault in him. Yet in verse 12 we see, Matthew chapter 27, verse 12, that the priests and the elders lay into Jesus with false charges. Insurrection. He's telling people not to pay taxes. All these things are false. Friends, when Jesus comes, he won't need to tell people to stop paying taxes. He won't need to raise up an insurrection. You know, a lot of people in this world today, think that the kingdom of God needs to be spread by means like that, insurrection, raising up, toppling governments, establishing the kingdom of God by the force of the sword of man. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. That's not how it's established. He doesn't need those things. But to these accusations, Jesus is silent. And Jesus' silence shocks Pontius Pilate. Here is a Jew he's never seen before. This is an unusual Jew. First of all, this Jew is making all the other Jews pro-Roman. That's strange. (laughs) Never seen this before. Here's a Jew that claims to be the king, but doesn't stir up any political waters. That's strange. Here's a Jew that's silent before his accusers, which is going to get him condemned. In the John, he says, Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or release you? Jesus answers by saying, You don't have any power over me but what you've been given. This is a strange Jew indeed. As he stands silent before his accusers, J.C. Ryle writes, To those silent sufferings, believers owe all of their hope. What if Jesus hadn't been silent? What if Jesus said, I'm out of here. I've had enough of this abuse like many of us would do. (laughs) Usually when you take that road, you lose an opportunity to bring peace and hope and reconciliation into a situation. Pilate concludes Jesus is not worthy of death. Weird, perhaps, in Pilate's eyes, but not a criminal. Pilate now seeks to have Jesus released. And make no mistake, Pilate is truly seeking to have Jesus released. He does not want to put him to death. In verse 18, we read that Pilate knows that it was for envy that they handed him over. How did he know that? Well, it takes one to know one. (laughs) Pilate obviously is an ambitious man and he can sniff out ambition when he sees it, right? He's an envious man himself. He can tell these guys are just envious at Jesus. Takes one to know one. Also, verse 19 tells us that Pilate's wife has a dream and the wife Reports to Pilate this dream and says, Have nothing to do with that innocent, righteous man. Because I had a dream about him and suffered many things on account of him. Who knows what was in that dream? We don't know. But we can just imagine what it was to convince this Roman prefect's wife to have nothing to do with that man. What a dream that must have been. So Pilate, he's seeing that Jesus is not really a criminal. He's seeing that they're being envious. He's he's heard from his wife. He's seeking to release Jesus and he sees an opportunity to do so. You know, the crowd is all there demanding Jesus' death. And he sees an opportunity and he expects it to work. Now at the feast, it was customary for Pilate to release a prisoner. And Pilate knew, hey, I have a prisoner in custody right now that nobody likes. Barabbas says in verse 16, they had then a notable prisoner. A notable prisoner. Everybody knew about this guy. He was notorious. He was the kind of prisoner that everybody knew about. It wasn't some crime that he committed that only his family knew about. It was a crime that he committed and the rumor spread and everybody knows about Barabbas. The other Gospels tell us that Barabbas was a robber, which means he was a violent thief. He was a murderer, and get this, he was an insurrectionist. Okay? That means he was stirring up people to topple the Romans. The very thing that they're accusing Jesus of, right? The very thing that they're saying, you need to get rid of this Jesus guy because he's an insurrectionist. He says, okay, I've got another insurrectionist. And I, I think I, ex- I have an opportunity here to let Jesus off the hook. I'm going to put forth another insurrectionist and one that's clearly not a good person. It'll be a catch-22. If insurrectionists they don't like, then let's see. They'll pick Jesus over Pilate because Jesus is clearly the better one. Pilate thinks that perhaps popular opinion will sway in Jesus' favor even though the leaders are envious of Jesus. Insurrectionists you don't like, huh? Do you want me to release Barabbas to you? Jesus. (laughs) Now in verse 20 we find one of the most frightening conjunctions in all of the Bible in the word but because Pilate lays before them these two options. They've demanded Jesus' death because of insurrection and while two insurrectionists are put before them in verse 20 we read but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. We don't know how they did this. We don't know if it was immediately on the spot or if there was a break that took place. And during that break they went around and talked to people. What we do know is that they persuaded the multitude and it was a colossal persuasion. What arguments did they use in that moment? Perhaps they started yelling out in Hebrew to the crowds, remember Moses, remember what Moses said, and Moses taught us in the law, and this Jesus is corrupting us against the law of Moses. Remember the temple, that Jesus is he's not for the temple, he said that he would destroy the temple, and they're stirring up the people this way. Remember the Sabbath, and he's a Sabbath breaker. Who knows what, his, what their arguments were. Or perhaps it was simply the people's great trust they had in their leaders. The people trusted their leaders. The leaders say, pick Jesus, not Barabbas. And they say, whoa, our leaders are saying, pick Jesus, not Barabbas. And our leaders cannot lead us astray. You know how many people think like that today? Our leaders cannot lead us astray because we're under the, the, the uh, persuasion that our leaders have a divine uh, deposit of truth. That our leaders are appointed by God and the truth that they preach is divinely protected by God. They cannot lead us astray. You think that's, that, that is what they believed at that time? There was a belief in that time that, yes, Moses gave us the law in writing, but God has preserved the interpretation of that law through the tradition of the teachers and that also is divinely given and protected and we can trust it. And many people today, they trust their leaders uncritically because of the same kind of reasoning. Well, God has established a church and a leadership. He's protecting the truth in that church. He's protecting the truth in that tradition. And men trust them uncritically. Friends, do not ever trust men uncritically because men will lead you against Christ even in the name of God. And it happens today, just as much as it happened on that fateful day before Pontius Pilate. Don't ever trust men uncritically because men can be wrong and lead you astray. Don't ever think that, hey, there's a divine office and as long as a person is in that office they can do they can say nothing that would lead us astray. That's not true. We should learn a lesson from this day. It's not that the people are not guilty. They like what they hear. But the shepherds are more guilty who've taught them to love lies. In verse 21, Pilate asks again because it's almost like he thought he didn't hear them right. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? (laughs) He was shocked. He asked the second time. He heard them right, but he thought maybe his ears were playing tricks on him because he expected them to choose Jesus. Barabbas, they all shout out in verse 21. Barabbas, who do you want? Barabbas. And here's the irony of the name Barabbas. The name Barabbas means... Son of the Father. Son of the Father. Bar is Son. Abba is Father. Barabbas means Son of the Father. He says, which one do you want me to give you? Son of the Father. We want the Son of the Father. But not the true Son of the Father. Can you imagine what the angels are hearing? We want the Son of the Father, but not the true Son of the Father. We don't want the Son of God, who reveals the Father. We want this Son of the Father. What do you want me to do, verse 22, with Jesus, the Son of the Father? Crucify Him. Get Him away from us. Let Him be gone. When it all boils down, dear friends, unrighteous men, men left to themselves, do not want the truth of God, especially the religious people. They do not want to really know God because what that knowledge of God will mean. Jesus is, this is the, the most important theology of Christ, that he is the Son of God who reveals to us what the Father is like. He came out of heaven to show us what God is like. He came out of heaven to teach us the truth of God, the words of God. And they hated what they heard and they hated what they saw and they did not want God. Jesus pulled away the masks, pulled away the phoniness and showed what men are really like when left to themselves. Pilate asked in verse 23, why? Has he done any evil? And this is the same with God. God has done no evil for being himself. Has God done any evil by saying, you know what, my creations, I'm a, I'm a righteous God and require righteousness. Is that, has he done any wrong? You know what, friends, you're unrighteous. You're guilty. You deserve destruction. Has he done any wrong by telling us the truth? No. No. But men hate God, even though he's done no wrong, because they hate the truth. They don't reason with Pilate, do they? Why? What evil has he done? But they just cried out all the more, let him be crucified. They don't want to reason. They can't reason. It isn't about reason. It's about their hatred of the truth and their hatred of God. This is the significance of Barabbas in this story. That when Barabbas is held forth and Jesus is held forth, both of them insurrectionists, and they choose Barabbas, we see man for what they really are. The whole thing about Jesus as an insurrectionist, get rid of him, is phony. It's a lie. They just hate Jesus because of righteousness and because of truth. They hate God. This is the significance of Barabbas. We need to learn the lesson here. You want to see what men are really like? Read the Passion, see what happened to Jesus. See what happened when Jesus encountered the most religious men of his day that everyone thought were good. It's the same thing that would happen today. When we preach the truth, when we carry on the ministry of Jesus and preach the truth about righteousness and about God, watch what happens to the religious leaders of the day. The same thing will take place. In verse 24, Pilate realizes that there's nothing he can do. The crowd is demanding Christ's death. And a riot is forming, it says in verse 24. It means these people are not going to settle for anything but the death of Jesus. There's nothing he can do. Jerusalem, at this time of the festival, is filled to the brim and overflowing with Jews. Pilgrims from all over the world who have come. They say that the population of Jerusalem in the first century was about 600,000 and it would double or even triple, probably double, at the Passover. So you've got the Romans, heavenly outnumbered, over a million people versus about 3,000 soldiers, which is what Pilate would have had. 3,000 soldiers to keep the peace. The power has now shifted to the people. Pilate doesn't have the power to stop what's going to happen. He either is going to die and allow a riot to take place and lose his own life for what is right and for the truth, or he's going to capitulate. That's Pilate's options. Either right now I'm going to say, no, we will not put to death an innocent man, and there's going to be a riot, and he might even lose his life or his job or whatever. Or he has to give in. And Pilate, as we've seen, does not have the strong convictions of the truth, and he capitulates. Pilate, in verse 24, takes water, And he washes his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pilate declares that Jesus is just. Judas declared that Jesus was just. Remember? I've betrayed innocent blood. So here's a remarkable thing. We have the testimony of Jesus' betrayer and Jesus' crucifier that he's just. Judas and Pilate both give their witness that Jesus is just. And in verse 26, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified while the insurrectionist Barabbas, the murderer and the robber, goes free. The question I'd like to ask this morning is when Pilate took the water and washed his hands before the multitude, did that make Pilate innocent of the death of Jesus? Now, most commentators will say no. If you uh, go find a, a commentary on Matthew, read what the commentator has to say on this verse, they'll say, no, of course it doesn't. Just because you wash your hands with water doesn't mean that you're innocent of sin. And so they'll say, no, Pilate is not innocent. He shouldn't have done that. And it was wrong. And The washing of the water was meaningless. But brothers and sisters, I think that that is too hasty to say. And missing the point that Matthew wants us to see. Matthew wants us to see something very important in this incident. Pontius Pilate, make no mistake, was not a good man. What we know about Pilate from outside of the Bible and from in the Bible is not that he's a good man at all, okay? But in this incident, Pilate did exactly what any Roman would do. He did what any Roman would do. Now, of course, the ideal thing to do would have been to stand up like the prophet Isaiah and to proclaim, you guys are a bunch of sinners, (laughs) right? You guys are completely wrong. You're Breaking God's rules and God is just, and this is scandalous. He should have preached to them and been stoned himself. But Pilate didn't know the truth. Pilate was an ignorant man. Pilate wasn't a Jew who had been raised with Moses and the prophets. Pilate sinned for sure, but his sin was not the greatest sin in this incident. His sin was that he was an ignorant man like the rest of the world in ignorance. But what he did was what any of them would do. The Jews had the greater sin who brought Jesus to Pilate to be crucified with all the knowledge that they had. They didn't reason. They heard Jesus and they hated him. And they wanted him crucified. And I want to make this very clear that in all of this that we've read this morning Matthew wants us to see this that the Jews were the responsible agents for the death of Jesus. Let me say that again. In all of this, Matthew wants us to see that the Jews were the responsible agents for the death of Jesus. And Pilate is only featured as a contrast to them to bring out their colors. Pilate appears in this story in a prominent place not because he's the prominent person who's responsible for the death of Jesus, but because he is bringing out the contrast. One German commentator, W. Trilling, says this, Pilate has the function of an extra, or perhaps a catalyst, which helps to define unequivocally the people's stance toward the Messiah. This is unmistakable in verse 25. Verse 25, the people answer all all the people answered and said his blood be on us and on our children and so it is it was to the Jews that Jesus came the people were led by their leaders to hate Jesus they conspired to have him put to death they betrayed him they tried him. They coerced Pilate to crucify him. They are the ones who are responsible. The question is often asked, who killed Jesus? And the answer is often given, we all killed Jesus. Because all of us have sinned and it was for our sins that he died. That's an absolutely true statement. I'm not going to deny that. It's technically true. Some people will say, Pilate is responsible for the death of Jesus. It is true, technically, he is the one who pulled the trigger. He is the one who sentenced Jesus to be crucified. But to say that we all killed Jesus and to say that Pilate killed Jesus, while technically true, is not perfectly accurate or clear, or as clear as we could be. There's really two answers to that question that gives us the human side and the divine side as to who's responsible for the death of Jesus. First of all, on the human side the ones who are responsible for putting Jesus to death are the Jews. On the divine side, the one who is responsible for putting, to je- putting Jesus to death is God himself. The appalling aspect of the Passion falls upon the way that God's people, the Jews, tre- treated their own Messiah. The appointed aspect of the Passion falls upon the fact that God sent his Son into the world to die and he's simply using their sin as the instrument for him to die for the sins of the world. Now I know that what I've said this morning about who is responsible for the death of Jesus is controversial, and I'd like to say just a few things about this. This truth, that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, has been turned into a devilish and destructive channel of anti-Semitism. This truth When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, all of a sudden you had a Christian empire. And within that Christian empire, you had a whole lot of Jews who weren't Christians. And they didn't belong to your nation. While the Romans would tolerate them in the past, even though that toleration was often stretched thin, the Jews were slandered by Christians as Christ killers. They're taking this truth. They've read the Bible. Who is the one who's responsible for the death of Christ? The Jews. And the Christians began to condemn them for deicide. Deicide means the death of God. So they're saying, now these people, these nuisance people, they are God murderers, Christ killers. And you can read in the Christian preachers in their own theology, that these people, because they are Christ killers and because they committed deicide, have stepped beyond the reach of God's grace. And for that reason, the only purpose they have is to be an ever-present testimony of the wrath of God. St. Augustine said, we ought not to kill the Jews, because if we kill them all, then there won't be that testimony of the ever-present wrath of God but we should drive them from their homes. Every now and again, keep them on the run so that they always remain under us, so they always are seen to be a people under the wrath of God because of what they did to Jesus Christ. And so 1,700 years passed of so-called Christian, what I call Christian barbarism, where the church, or what was called the church, Persecuted Jews because they were Christ killers. I have said this morning that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, but I'm also saying that it is devilish to persecute them because of it. It's well known that the Holocaust that happened in the last century could not have happened without 1700 years of Christian anti Semitism. Many Jews on the day that they were in the Holocaust on Christmas Day, heard the Nazi soldiers singing Silent Night while they were being ushered to the gas chambers. The horror of the Holocaust changed the world. In the 1960s, at the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church officially stated, or they officially revoked the teaching that they had taught for the last 1,700 years, that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. And then you can read in the Second Vatican Council, they officially revoked that and said, the Jewish people are not responsible for the death of Jesus. So in order to get Christians to stop hating Jews, we have to acquit them of their sin. What's wrong with that? Is that true? In order to get Christians to stop hating Jews... In order to get Christians to stop hating those who are Christ killers, we have to release them of the charge of being Christ killers. Does that sound very Christian? <laughs> What's the point of Christianity? That it's not by denying our sin that we find acceptance with God and grace with God, right? You come to us with a guilty conscience. You come to me with a guilty conscience, say, Eli, I've... Blown it, is there any hope for me? I'm not going to say, ah, you know, your sin's not that bad, don't worry about it. I'm going to help you get a clear conscience by telling you your sin's not that bad. No, I'm going to say, Well, yeah, your sin is bad, but you know what's greater than your sin? Do you know what's even deeper than your sin? You know what's what extends beyond the reach of your evil? The grace of God. The love of God? Do you know that there's forgiveness for the worst of sinners? Do you know that no matter how bad you are, God sent his son to die for you so that you could be saved because he loves you as a sinner? It's not because you're not his enemy, it's because you are his enemy that he did that. Do you know that you can have peace with God not by denying your sins, but by finding a greater thing, the forgiveness and the grace of God? Christianity, friends, is about Jesus being sent by God for unrighteous, evil people, dying for our sins, coming to the unrighteous who have no righteousness, zero. The Jews aren't negative one. They have none and neither do we, apart from Christ. And Christ died on the cross and took our sins upon himself and paid for them there so that we could be righteous as a gift, not through our works, not through our self-reformation, but by the grace of God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the most vilest, guilty sinner is made completely clean when he comes to Christ in simple faith, trusting what Jesus did on the cross for him. And it's only this that shows us the love of God. Christian anti-Semitism has failed to grasp the gospel completely. And it's no wonder that Christian anti-Semitism thrives in those Christian, quote quote circles that don't understand the gospel of righteousness through faith. Christ died for those who killed him. Christ died for his killers. And they can be forgiven, just like any of us can be forgiven. What an amazing God we preach and know that the one who is responsible Can be forgiven of the greatest crime, hatred of God. We have an example in the Apostle Paul, the chief Pharisee, who is forgiven and said, My salvation is a pattern for anyone who would believe after, because I was the worst. And if the worst could be saved, so can anyone. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I'd like to show you from Scripture that what I'm saying is true. Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's very first sermon to the Jews that are gathered at Jerusalem. These are Jews that have come from all over the, the, uh, the world. And I want you to notice what Peter says to them in Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 22. And listen very carefully to the words that he uses. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him, in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him, and now notice the divine side and the human side of the death of Christ, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken. Who has taken? This whole crowd he's talking to. You have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Who did that? What if they say, that wasn't me, that was those guys, that wasn't even there that day. No, nope. men of Israel, you have taken, and by wicked hands have slain. Now that was the determinate counsel of God. God was simply using their sin, but you have done this. Look to verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? All of a sudden they realized, yikes, we're guilty of the blood of Christ and all the blood shed from righteous Abel. To Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, as Jesus said in Matthew 23. Whoa! We believe you. What do we need to do? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord shall call. There is forgiveness for those who have committed the greatest sins. And just because we can affirm the truth that Matthew so clearly wants us to see, and we could obviously go to other scriptures in the Old and New Testament to show that the Jews are truly responsible for the death of Jesus as the human instruments, that that does not mean that we must be devilish and slanderous and condemn them and say that there's no grace for them. That is utterly unchristian. And it goes against everything we believe as Christians. Take an example from the first Christian sermon of Peter who said you have slain him with wicked hands and you may be forgiven of all your sins and your children as well. Any person who turns to God through Jesus Christ for forgiveness and to find righteousness will be will be forgiven. Last thing I would say on that point is that Though Israel is the one who is responsible for the death of Jesus and not any other, we can see in them ourselves. We were if we were in their place, we would have done the same thing, right? I mean, I hope you believe that. I hope you don't say, Man, if I were if you know if they if Jesus had come to America, if, <clears throat> we would never have crucified him. That is not true. Or if if, if you transplanted, transplanted all of us to uh, the first century and put us in everyone's place, we would have done things differently. Or if we were in the days of Noah, we would have gotten on that ark. Or if we were in the Garden of Eden, we would have never eaten from that tree. It's the same principle. Adam is the one who ate from the tree. Adam and Eve, not us. Adam and Eve. But yet we see ourselves in them. We see ourselves as guilty with them. Because, not that we did it, but we would have. You see someone on the news murder somebody. They were the ones who murdered, not you. But you don't look at them and say, wow, I'm so much better than that person. You say, wow, look what man is capable of doing. I see myself in them. And the same with Israel. We say, they're the ones who are responsible for the death of Jesus. They're the ones who betrayed him, tried him, pushed the the trial through with Pilate and saw him dead. They did it. But wow, I see myself in them as well. I'm going to remind you of what Matthew Henry said. He was already bound with the bounds of love to man and and of his own undertaking, or else he had broken those bonds as Samson had done his. We were fettered with the bonds of iniquity held in the cords of our sin, but God had bound the yoke of our transgressions upon the neck of the Lord Jesus that we might be loosed by his bonds. I want us now to consider it from God's perspective. That even though... Israel was the instrument. It was truly God who delivered Jesus to die for our sins. Yes, Israel sinned. We all have sinned. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous. No, not one. And as long as we persist in our self-righteousness and pride and hatred of God, today we partake in the sin of Israel in crucifying the true Son of the Father. But the darker man's sin the deeper the love of God is shown to be. God never ceased to love Israel. You can read that in the scriptures. And God never ceases to love any man or woman, no matter how sinful, even if you think your sin is the worst. Now, be encouraged this morning that God loves you and sent his son to die for your sin. In closing, let us behold the Son who reveals the Father. Let us, as John says, behold what manner of love the Father has toward us. Let us behold in this story the greatest love story ever told and that ever will be told. You'll never hear anything more beautiful than this. And let us be reminded of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, and I'll just close with these words, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And with difficulty for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man some would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we we don't want to turn away from the difficult truths in your word because they're not popular. We thank you for your word and we thank you that in your word we see that no matter how deep and dark our sin may be, that your grace is greater. Thank you for the comfort and the encouragement we can see in the sin of Israel and in your love towards them. Encourage everyone here today, Lord, with your great love. If there's anyone who's struggling with condemnation, help them to see in your death everything that they need for life and peace and hope. Lord, if there's anyone here today who thinks that they're righteous because of what they do, because of their good works, or because they think that they don't sin very badly, Pray that you would show them the truth about righteousness this morning. That God requires perfection. And that there's no hope apart from your grace and the righteousness that's the gift. Help us to proclaim this loudly in, a, in the city that we live and wherever we are. Lord, be glorified in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.